ATV Talk, the podcast. Sit down with your host industry professional, Leonard Duncan, as the men and women from the ATV world bring their behind-the-scenes stories to life. Every Tuesday at 5 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. And remember, dream big. It could be your story one day. GBC Power Sports Tires, a division of Green Ball Corp, has been producing industry-leading tires for ATV side-by-side market for over 25 years with tires like Mongrel, Dirt Devil, TerraMaster, XC Master, Dirt Commander, and Groundbuster. They have a tire for your application. Top racers from GNCC, Works, and Best in the Desert rely on GBC Power Sports tires. So why shouldn't you? Go check them out at gbctires.com to see the full line of tires they offer. Thank you very much. TPR Stabilizer, a leader in steering dampener technology, brings you the new Q5 Sport ATV damper with better control and handling with an upgraded vane and seal system. Go check it out today, www.gprstabilizers.com or call 619-661-0101. Don't forget to tell them ATV Talk Sandy. Everybody, I have a special treat for you today. Um, ATV Talk Inspired has had the pleasure of Dr. Wick Cheatham uh, to sit down with us and talk to us about some of the safety aspects of our industry. And he's going to give us some information on COVID and just talk to us about what it's like to be a doctor in today's modern world. Um, Wick, how's it going, man? Good, man. Thanks for having me on. Appreciate it. It's amazing. I uh, have heard of some amazing things about you, and and uh, my son thinks you are brilliant. <laughs> or they, they can fool some of the people some of the time. <laughs> <laughs> well, hey, I think Danny's got a pretty good judge of character, and uh, yeah. and he likes he thinks the world of you. So, well, that's kind. Uh, I'm inclined to uh, respect your opinion right off the bat. Oh, well, we'll see. Hopefully, I can maintain that. Well, that's awesome. What uh, what got you into medicine? Uh, the short answer is uh, uh, the fear of not fulfilling potential and death anxiety. Not fulfilling potential, not uh, achieving what I thought I was capable of. I my path is a little different than a lot of physicians out than every other physician out there. Every story is unique, but my course is fairly unique for most doctors. So you are afraid of not achieving at a higher level? Of not making a difference, but the X number of years I was given. Yeah, truthfully, yeah. That I need to make something of myself and I need to, you know, I need to achieve and, and uh, I don't know, achieve potential that I think I thought I had and a lot of people thought I had. So yeah that's and then the fear of death yeah yeah you wanted an honest answer that's the yeah truth. yeah i just yeah. it kind of yeah it kind of shocks me a little i mean they uh, say none of us are going to get out of this alive yeah that's what they say that's what they say anybody that knows different probably wouldn't tell us um 
Yeah. No, I had some some medical hardships when I was a kid. I was hospitalized for two and a half months in a uh, hospital in Atlanta with a uh, degenerative diff, uh, hip disorder. And I uh, saw some people around me, you know, suffer from some uh, maladies, you know, typical medical stuff that we all experience in our life. But I would say it was just the fear of realizing my clock is running out. And if I was going to do something, I need to get on the horse and stay on it. So how long have you been a doctor? Uh, I graduated medical school in 1999. Really? How, how long was that process? I always tell people I have after high school, I have, I think, 15 years after high school before I was done. Oh, yeah. Truthfully, I had to do the math for you here. Four years of medical school. I did a year of uh, bench top uh, research. I got in vet school. My dad's a veterinarian. Decided I didn't want to do that and wasn't sure if I wanted to do PhD or MD route and did a year of bench top research. But that won't count that. That wasn't uh in a formal graduate program at that time, just doing research as an assistant. But uh, four years of med school, and then uh, four years of college, four years of med school, that's eight. Then I had three years of residency in pediatrics, and I never intended to do pediatrics. I always wanted to do ICU. And then I did two fellowships. I did both a neonatal fellowship and a pediatric ICU fellowship. So I do down 23 weeks up to, up to 18 years, and sometimes even older. So the last that's eight plus the next four and the next three. So 15 years of training after <laughs> high school, <laughs> truthfully. Wow. That, that's incredible. How did you end up in Idaho? Uh, ooh, not a short answer to that. Uh, I was in uh, uh, school in, at Georgia, University of Georgia, and basically had flunked out essentially at uh uh, made a 0.0 on my last, uh, a lot of people they exaggerate, but I actually had a 0.0 on my last uh, uh, quarter there and realized I'm not doing anything here. I had a friend that made a ton of money on a fishing boat in Alaska. So I got in my car at the end of the year, tried to go to Alaska and get a job on a fishing boat and was offered a job on a cannery boat, but he told me don't ever accept that. Never, never, never accept a cannery job. And money's good. This is back in 1994, 95. There were literally pamphlets on college campus in the back of the newspaper about going to Alaska. And he had done it, made enough money to buy a 1988 Porsche <laughs> one <laughs> summer. And I was like, I got to do something different. So I came out West and uh, got offered the cannery job and turned it down. Um, and I'm glad I did. I, I heard further stories about that. That's, that's, a, that's a tough job. Um, and uh, ended up in Portland, Oregon for a year because I couldn't come back home. Actually uh, worked for Paco Pumps in the Northwest part of Portland, Oregon. They did septic tank um, uh, uh, machinery and replacement. And so I was really the one that cleaned all the tubing in the warehouse and did that. Sold children's clothes at Mervyn's. I even sold Kirby vacuum cleaners door to door. (laughs) Sold one. Felt guilty about it. It was $1,600. And it's like, I don't like this. And so a little too slick for me. So that's pretty, that's pretty low. You're not going to be hitting the bottom, cleaning septic tanks and, uh, or going down into them and getting the machinery out. You can clean a septic tank, but the tubing and all that stuff. And, uh, and then I got a job at a window company. If you're ever out in Gresham, Oregon and drive by on the interstate, you'll see it. It's now um, Pella. It's right there on the south side of the interstate, right when you're going through Gresham. But it was called Viking Window. Okay. It offered me a full-time job after about three months of being a temp worker there. I had some college education. I'm a hard worker. Nobody ever said I wasn't a hard worker. just didn't apply myself. And that's when I realized I got to get serious. 
No, I did. I wanted more. I wanted to do more. And, you know, I'd um, done well in standardized testing. I knew what I was capable of. And so then I came back east and tore it up. Had a 4 0 my last two years. Graduated the honors from med school. Um, and uh, truthfully, and uh, I wanted to come out west because um, I liked it out west. And so I ended up in Salt Lake City. I looked at Denver and Seattle. And Salt Lake City was uh, just seemed like a nice fit. Uh, I had never known much about it, but couldn't believe how close the mountains were and how far the mountains were away in Denver and then the cost of living in Seattle. And so, and, and uh, they were super welcoming to this idea of doing two fellowships. They were all on board with it and, and uh, willing to work with me. And uh, so I came out West and I've stayed ever since. Just I tell people if I'd started on this side of the coast, I'd be right now, I'd be in, you know, I'd be in, in uh, Virginia, North Carolina, you know, probably a little peripatetic. Uh -huh. Wow. I've been Southern California my whole life. So, um, yeah, Danny, yeah. How Danny ended up in Idaho. Um, I have no idea. And, and he loved <laughs> yeah, there's a lot to, there's a lot to like about, um, uh, this part of the country. Nothing's perfect. And, um, but uh, it's a good, he works. I think it's, it's a good hospital we work at and, uh, good facility and we have good outcomes and, uh, it's a good place. That being said, you work mostly with uh, children then. Mm -hmm. Only children. All, yep. all children? All children. In my pediatric training um, at Primary Children's, which is a big children's hospital here in Salt Lake City, um, we have cardiothoracic, neurosurgical, and all hemoc, all, all the big programs. It's a big children's hospital. We'd sometimes take care of cardiovascular patients and syndromic patients, you know, that had uh, pediatric type um, issues. And some of the cardiac patients, uh, the surgeries they did years ago aren't done anymore. And so the only surgeons that could take care of them were the cardiothoracic surgeons. And so they, they'd park them in our ICU. That was one in a blue moon. That was one a year. Some 40-year-old woman with her kids would come in and uh, it was kind of surreal. But uh, yeah, I only do 18 and under. Um, traumas to respiratory infections to extreme prematurity, you know, 500 gram babies, you know, the whole gamut. That's pretty tiny, huh? Yeah, it's super tiny. Yeah, it goes down smaller than that, but I don't want to talk about that. <laughs> those are those are ones where outcomes are kind of kind of up in the air. So a 500 gram baby, the, what's the odds of of that person having a normal life? That's the that's the correct question to ask. Or a life, because um, living there's you know there's living and there's living, and uh, so that's what I would say. You, you know, it's not about living; it's about having a life that you can. Thinking, you know, what we all would call meaningful, engaging with your surroundings, give and take, and finding joy in things. You know, at 500 grams, it depends on the gestational age. Uh, it could be anywhere from high 75% to a low of 20%. That's incredible. Yeah. yeah. It's extremely heart wrenching and extremely gratifying all at the same time. Yeah. It's a, the proverbial double edged sword. You have to have great outcomes, you got to take great risk, you know. Well, that's, I think, with anything that you do, um, yeah. you know, I'm yeah. in the off-road industry and uh, to learn my craft, you've had to, I've had to give hours of my life, just like you did. I, there was no school to go to other than just physically working on machines, mm -hmm. you know, sometimes in the most adverse of conditions, you know, I mean. Yeah, you know, you're passionate and to be excellent in anything, it just takes you know, Malcolm Gladwell got credit for it, but it, it's predated him for years and years, the 10,000 hour rule. But uh, uh, that didn't take into account people's ceiling. Um, you know, we all have a ceiling. 
you know, I couldn't be uh, Stephen Hawking if I gave it literally a hundred thousand hours, you know, or Michael Jordan if I gave it. So we just have to hit our own ceiling, you know? Yeah. I mean, everybody, I mean, there are people that are never going to be great at certain things because they're just never going to be that, you know, I mean, I'm never going to be a basketball player, you know, A, I don't like basketball and B, I'm short, (laughs) you know, just (laughs) never going to happen. Um, I don't, I don't know. where Danny's ability to do what he does comes from because he's been in uh, mechanics his whole life. He's not been a, uh, a healthcare worker. Yeah. In the he, chose, he chose the right profession. You see a lot of people with mechanical backgrounds going to respiratory therapy. It's pretty there. They're, you know, they, they overlap in a lot of ways pretty nicely. Well, he, he at a young age was very mechanically aptitude. I mean, he understood, you know, righty tighty, lefty loosey, and all the, the the numbers. He could watch people do things and and uh, tell his grandfather because he spent a lot of time with his grandfather in the shop. Go, Grandpa, that's not how you do that. And he couldn't do it, but he could tell you that was the wrong way to do it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Some people I do I have a natural talent. They do, they do. It, it, yeah. I, I'm very fortunate and blessed that I that I just was born into my calling. I didn't I didn't have to go look for it, fortunately. Yeah. Yeah. So l- let me ask you a couple other questions. You are in Idaho and you're close to the sand dunes relatively. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And in our earlier conversations, everybody that, that listens to ATV, ATV talk knows that I don't like to pre-script anything. And I, I'm going to tell you right now, I didn't pre-script this, uh, but we did talk a little bit because um, there were some clarifications on some things. But safety in our industry is huge. And that's one of the things that I wanted to talk to you about because you get to see probably some of the worst portions of our industry. And um, I don't know if uh, you have some insight on some of the safety things that maybe we could do to improve for our youth that are coming up in the industry. Yeah, well, that's a loaded question. And you're right, we didn't talk other than you saying you don't want to really go into things and you like to do pre-scripted. That was really the extent of the conversation was that we're not going to (laughs) talk. That was the conversation. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Sadly, when I work in the PICU, again, it's this age old question. People would ask me if uh, uh, how safe are trampolines? They'd ask me that. And I said, well, I rarely have ever told seen a, a trampoline injury admitted to the PEDS ICU. Very rarely. And they go, OK, it sounds, they must be pretty safe. And I said, or they're all dying in the field. <laughs> it's hard to say. So I am I am funneled all of the bad cases, all all of the uh, ATV, uh, accidents and, and, uh, um, incidents that uh, result in injury, you know, I get those. So it's like, I joke with you. I've never seen a healthy newborn baby in, in 20 years. I haven't seen a healthy one. I've heard there's a rumor that babies are born without needing IVs and antibiotics and breathing tubes. And I've heard that people can ride ATVs and not have any injuries. So, um, unfortunately it's, uh, it's something that, uh, that I, I see too often, um, you know, in Peds ICU, we kind of have a, a seasonal approach to our medicine. Respiratory seasons, winter, fall, and early spring, and then trauma season, 
is uh you know late spring just memorial day to labor day pretty much you know we get some of everything in between but it's pretty seasonal in the peds icu and uh yeah i've got story after story to tell you of of of, of injuries and some of them could have been prevented um others couldn't have uh parents had done all their uh prerequisites i guess and and tried to you know uh prepare for 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 events so as you know you're when you're on a motorcycle on the road you're only 50 percent of the equation so you know um but i would say in, in idaho in our peds icu and we have a busy we have a level two trauma center we are the trauma center for eastern idaho western wyoming and that's prime atv country in the summer a lot of that area prime atv country up in the up in the sawtooth up into central idaho you know we, we get a lot of uh of uh motorized vehicle trauma from from the razors um not many motorcycles not many dirt bikes believe it or not uh i think that has to do with some basic physics but we see a good bit of atv i'd say we admit to the peds icu we have a six bed peds icu to give you a perspective on how big it is it's not a very big one primaries is 45 beds but they have a cardiac and neurosurgical and and craniofacial they have a lot um but we're the second biggest picu between um las vegas and the canadian border <laughs> there's just kids don't yeah it's just not a busy busy service our adult icu is 50 beds at, at where i am and my neonatal icu is nearly 30 beds so you get an idea that just uh pediatrics is a very unique slice of the pie um, but we see it all. I'd say I admit this past year, we admitted half a dozen, uh, ATV injuries that warranted ICU admission, you know, to, to the, to the unit. And they'd stay for a variety of, from two days to looking at their uh, fractured you know, liver and spleen to up to a month or so dealing with complex, you know, multi-organ injury, soft tissue and, and, uh, bone, you know, orthopedic issues and things like that. So that's a pretty typical year half a dozen that's that's lower than i expected to hear from you i was yeah, expecting the, the numbers to be much higher yeah that's 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 i'd say and we you know every year i'd say there's probably two deaths three deaths a year they don't come to my icu i only have one or two that get to my icu we're hoping we can save them but then if things don't work out we often at least can try to um uh, donate from the organ donation pathway. So I, you know, in my career, I pronounced a lot. I was at primaries, you know, and, and it did pales in comparison to, to motor vehicle co uh, collisions, of course, but the, the uh, uh, denominator is vastly different in the two as well. So uh, I'd say the ER, we probably see 15, 20, 15, this is a guess. 15 to 25 ATV accidents a year in the ER that are, that are brought in by transport, by helicopter, you know, fixed wing or, or ambulance. You know. Probably most of those are broken bones. Most of those, exactly. Most of those are just broken bones. Yep. Tip, fib fractures, uh, wrist fractures, you know, um, and uh, bad abrasion, soft tissue injuries, broken ribs, you know, hit the handlebars, hit a tree, you know, but they'll go to the floor, you know. So I'd say there's a, you know, uh, a dozen ATV accidents admitted to the floor. If they have anything inside their head and they're under 12, in other words, if they have a brain bleed, they're going to go down to primaries because we don't have a pediatric neurosurgeon. So nice. we don't see those. If they're over 12, our adult neurosurgeons feel comfortable with it. Is, is there that big of a difference between uh, 12 and down to 12 and up? 
Uh, yeah, yeah, there is. Of course, I mean, it's, it's, you're touching on kind of a, a point of mine uh, that I emphasize in our unit daily that this, the way we frame things has been to, everything is, is um, polemicized where it's this almost this dichotomous distribution. We've got an all or none phenomenon. And as you know, injuries are, are completely on a spectrum. So is an 11 year old, um, could their problems be handled by uh, an adult neurosurgeon? Probably 90 plus percent of the time. Yeah. 10 year old, 85% of the time. Seven year old, 75%. Two year old, 30% of the time. So it's just a continuum and you just got to draw a line in the sand about what you think is best, you know, for the, for the child. So um, yes and no is the answer. Yes and no. Yes and no. There's a liability reasons too. the American, um, what I was told by neurosurgeons that they came out a few years ago, basically said, don't be a cowboy. They said it in much more elegant terms, but basically said, if you're not a pediatric neurosurgeon, you don't need to be masquerading or pretending to be a pediatric neurosurgeon. Um, That's just the world has gotten more specialized, you know, but if a baby comes in and he has a, 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 an expanding hemorrhage in the skull and he's four years old, we will take him back and we will, you know, we will, um, uh, uh, drain or deal with that mass effect before they go down to primaries. Absolutely. You know, how, okay. I build ATVs for a living. I've been all over the world. I've got to meet amazing people and I still don't even have, can, I can't even fathom how gratifying it is to have your job. Well, uh, I mean, to help humanity. Yeah, I I feel that way a lot of times. And sometimes I forget about that. I'm doing stuff that really makes a huge impact because after a while you get numbed, right? You get numbed in your life. That's a good, you know, um, defense mechanism. We all have it. You know, we just kind of accept it as normal. Um, But uh, yeah, the the pick you is a different beast than anything out there. man. it's uh it's extremely gratifying, but nothing will break your heart. Um, you know, mother talked about the day before her seven-year-old was at batting practice at tea league. And then he's in there cause he was in a, you know, an accident or something, a burn, you know, and, uh, it's just different, you know, 85 years of age and, and a newborn never said a word or anything. Uh, they all hurt, but man, I saw a great thing. I think it was on the, Shriners Hospital, it was on this weekend, watching college football or something. It came up. A guy said it really well, Dad. He said, I used to think the scariest words in the world were, you have cancer. And then I heard what they were, and it was, your child has cancer. And you know what I mean? So things hit you harder when it's your child, I think. Um, you know, I hadn't met a parent yet that wouldn't get in that bed and change. I hadn't met a parent yet that wouldn't get in that bed and change places in two seconds with their child. You know, I agree. Yeah. Yeah. I'd still take the bullet for all my kids. Yep. You know, and grandkids. So it's, yep. Yep. you know, it's kind of crazy that Danny, I, I let Danny race. Um, and not a lot of people have ever asked me this, but every time that it comes up, I tell him the same thing. Would I let Danny race? Would I go back in time and let him race now? No. Mm-hmm. Not because I don't love ATVs, not because it's not a gratifying thing for me, but because Danny has some physical damage that will affect him the rest of his life because of it. And it's not because of improper gear. It's not because 
of riding ATVs. It's because Danny tried to achieve a raise, rise to a level because I was the mechanic for probably one of the greatest ATV racers of all time. And when you're exposed to that, you try to achieve that level. And he was a, he was a, a, C, a B rider and he wasn't a, an A rider. He wasn't a pro. He wasn't, he wasn't going to be that guy. Mm-hmm. It wasn't his forte, but he tried to ride to a higher level and yeah. he has physical injuries now because of it. Yeah. We kind of talked about that. You know, the limits we all have. If you can hit your ceiling, that's no shame in that. It's only pride, right? If you hit your ceiling, but uh, yep. Yep. Yeah, yeah. There's, uh, I mean, I'm letting my child play contact football. I let him last year. Uh, I know what I'm, t- and uh, um, the benefits of it to me outweigh the risks. There's, that's what we all do, uh, not to be so conscious about it, but I'm pretty pragmatic. And when I approach things really in a way, I try to almost break it down into a formula, but I view the benefits as outweighing the risks. And so far they have. He's felt part of a team, he's felt proud of himself. He's learned to deal with adversity, uh, coaching style, and and uh, uh, typical behaviors on the football field, I think sometimes are a little little bit too uh, toxic chauvinism, you know. Uh, but overall, I think it's beneficial. There's not, like I said, everything's got a little bit of a messy answer in here. It's not all good and bad. But I, I right now, I'm very happy with his participation in football. You know, I worry about a neck injury or head injury. Um, I adopted him, and he's not a very big kid. One of the smallest kids out there, but um, – uh, you know, uh, right now, uh, based on what I know and what we've experienced, it's been beneficial to him, you know. I believe that contact sports teach boys to be men. They need to take responsibility for their actions right. and to restrain their aggressiveness and focus it to be used during the play and then not after the play or during the off time. And uh, I, I believe it's a good teacher. Yeah, studies, but again, they're retrospective studies from what I know. And so you can't determine causality with any retrospective analysis by definition. And so most studies though, that are done post hoc or after the events have occurred and you've looked at kids that have played in sports, um, you'll find that they do better uh, by most social measures, levels of education, truancy, um, even stability and future life endeavors from employment to marriage. So there's certainly benefits to be said. It, uh, you know, they, they stay out of trouble for one thing in the afternoon. <laughs> yes, they around they usually parents have to prod kids into it, you know, and so usually the involvement of parents in their lives is usually a little bit greater. So like I said, it's not controlled. So it's really hard to say. But, um, yeah, and I would say just, yeah, teaches them maybe how to be grown up uh, again. Um, I try to, uh, uh, you know, I don't know what a man is. I think a man's just a grown up, somebody that, uh, you know, accepts responsibility and does their best, I guess. That's the way I look at it a little bit, you know. how to Yeah, yeah I mean, the way I was taught to be a man is uh, owning your mistakes and um, always being accountable. You know, always being there, you showing up, showing up, going to work, you know, you do your things and, and uh, if you make a mistake, being big enough to wear that mistake. And uh, if you do something good, be humble enough to move on like it's supposed to happen that way and yeah, not yeah. make it bigger than it is. Yeah. Yeah. I think that goes again for women though, that play sports too. My daughter's played competitive basketball. 
uh, at the highest level. And, uh, you know, I, I think it's made them able to handle adversity better, being yelled at, being spotlighted, uh, having to struggle, you know, and find out you're not the best, uh, you know. And just, you know, it's, yeah, right. If you can learn how to learn how to lose is way more important than learning how to win. You know, unless there's only two people in the race, the odds are going to be that you're going to lose the majority of times in your life. <laughs> it's how to get back up. Right. Lombardi. Right. Ex- ex- I think that losing. Yeah. Um, okay. Let's take your profession. You know, the people that figured out some of the things that, that you know, how yeah. many times did they fail before they got there? Yeah. Oh, yeah, and that's what we talk about that. You come to my hospital in five years, and there's going to be two to two to six things that I'm going to tell you we don't do anymore. <laughs> and that's why I, I like my profession, because it truly is driven by, it's outcome-based, and yeah, we try to take all the dogmatism out of it. You have to, because that's not, that's the, that's one way to, to ground your your beliefs and your your thinking and, and, uh, and uh, misguided um, uh, um, ideals and misguided um, approaches is that you just accept it because it's always been there. But uh, yeah, Daniel, Dave, and since he's coming to our unit, we probably changed three or four protocols. Uh, so uh, uh, I'm still trying to get it right. And uh, I'll get better medicine in five years than I do now. And I'll, my partners and I'll get better in 10 years. You know, we're, we are not, that's why you know, that joke with practice in medicine. Uh, yeah, yeah, a lot of amazing people come before me, and, you know, you know, a lot of amazing people there now, a lot of the nurses, and not just idle chat, I'm sincere about that, a lot of, a lot of great nurses. That's awesome. I, I don't think that there's much difference in professions. We're all trying to grow, we're all trying to get better, at least yeah. the people that are trying to achieve uh, a higher level. You know, I know yeah, our company, yeah. we're trying to learn and adapt and change and grow constantly. Yeah. Yeah. You're seeing it more and more applied, applied statistics, the Billy Bean, right? Beanball, the Oakland A's. You're seeing okay. statistics guide us, you know, because uh, you leave it up to people and they're naturally going to, uh, all these affirmation biases and conscious biases that we have, you know, we got to get those out. We used to give transfusions like crazy to babies because we gave more blood, the better did some studies and found out actually they have a worse outcome unless they absolutely need it. You shouldn't transfuse them. That's a huge practice change since I started 20 years ago, huge. And we see it, but if you just look for an early outcome, a single, single measure, you might say, Oh, it's greater. But if you look in two years later, like developmentally, they didn't do as well. You know, they had more infections a month later and, you know, so yeah, it's, uh, uh, it's creeping into our world where statistics and just outcome measures are, are driving things, you know, and uh, anecdotal evidence or personal experience keeps dropping further and further aside. Uh, and I think you would tell me, this is where I could ask you a question, if, uh, what your thoughts might be, those that embrace in your world and culture, you know, technology and statistics and analysis are probably more likely to have success in the coming decades, you know. I think uh, some of that, yeah, there's some truth to that. Um, the people like myself that I don't have the same kind of educational background that you do. I have a hands-on learn how to do it background. Um, I can tell you by looking at things, they're not going to work. But if you ask me this, this, the specific data and reason why that's where I'll struggle 
knowing what works and knowing what doesn't work based on my experience in the industry and my experience in the time of breaking the amount of things that I've broken. um, That's where that comes in. But there are a new breed of young people that are coming in with data and technology that we've never used and they're having success in a specific region of the industry. Mm-hmm. Uh, they still have to rely on us to do some of our things uh, that that the data and the technology can't yeah. place yet. I mean, at some point, the, at some point they may. Um, I believe in my heart that the doll, the the experience that that the gray hairs have mm-hmm. will become so valuable in the future because there's not enough youth behind us. Oh, yeah, that would be from yeah, attrition that would be the argument, potentially, you know what I mean? You know, uh, yeah, experience is the best teacher. There's no, there's no doubt about that. Well, I yeah, I mean, you've, you've just talked about it, the, the changes in your hospital and the time that you've been there and the things that you do, you're adapting and overcoming and changing with the industry, but you still have a huge wealth of knowledge of these old things that used to be done that will still be needed at some point, at some level, in some place, you're going to know something that the new people don't know. And you're going to be able to save a life or, or help somebody uh, through a situation because of that knowledge that those other people won't have. Yeah. Yeah. No, there it's, it's, it's uh, invaluable at times. Absolutely. I think a a good balance of the, of both trying not to be, bogged down in just uh dogmatism you know traditional beliefs but uh be willing to adapt that's that's the best doctor you know or best you fill in the blank the best accountant uh, the best uh whatever the best uh, uh you know, i agree do. i agree with that because i got better at my job when i became more open to new things yeah yeah Yep. We were talking about safety issues and we got sidetracked into a whole nother uh, conversation. Um, I don't know if you know much about the safety equipment that ATV riders have available to them. Um, uh, uh, Rudimentary understanding uh, from helmets to chest plates, gloves to full length uh, upper and lower body, you know, coverage. Um, What else? That's, probably about it and the technology that goes into the helmets and some of that protective gear um that's about all i know that's it yeah they have some pretty advanced technology in the boots and your feet wear to protect your your lower leg and your ankles i mean uh-huh. not does it stop every injury no but it's come a long long way mm-hmm. and i know the helmet technology is tested constantly and they're changing from hard shell helmets to a more uh, flexible shell helmet with a different kind of padding. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I've suffered from a head injury. Yeah, twenty uh, some years ago. Yeah, and uh, that's the you see it, in, and I'm sure the technology extends up in your world. But the MIPS, I, I mountain bike, and the new helmets have come out in the last five years that take that torsional force and allow your head to spin a little bit inside of the. You talked about a hard shell. Right. Not so much a hard shell, yeah. And uh, you're going to see that keep coming more and more. If it wasn't for uh, cost, I'm sure we'd have disposable helmets, you know, that would absorb the injury, use it once, you're done, you throw it away. But there's a cost factor, right? 
Well, no. in some of in some of the racing series and so associations, if that helmet takes an impact, it's gone. Yeah, yeah. It doesn't matter how much it costs. It means you're buying a new one because yeah. the structural integrity of the helmet uh, can't handle it. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, I mean, I've I've broke multiple helmets. Um, the first one I broke was a most super expensive showy. It was great. I broke it in the front and the back. And that's when I experienced my major head injury. Yeah. The second one I broke, I broke the top of it out and it was a cheaper, less expensive, kind of a throwaway helmet. Yeah. You know, and I didn't even have a headache after it didn't even have any residual effect yeah. of breaking the helmet at all. The first one that was pretty gnarly. Yeah, it could be. And again, that's where, again, statistical analysis, you know, kind of tell you uh, anecdotal sample size and, and personal experience, you know, go into that. So it's hard to draw a conclusion from that. It's an impossibility, actually, you know, from those two studies to draw any conclusions whatsoever. Because um, right. you don't know the force, the vector, the, the speed of impact, inertia, and your ability to discern injury after first, in, you know, all those things. But I just know that they're going now instead of the old school where you're just like battle armor and you just absorb the energy. It's trying to dissipate that energy in the, in the structural component of the shell or allow your body to continue to its, its, uh, uh, its built-in inertia or, or movement that's happened you know, from the accident. You know what I mean? Just It's all about energy dispersion. We all know that, right? Yep. Like, that's it. So, um, yeah, maybe like I said, these cheaper reusable, you know, strapping a double-layered styrofoam um you know cooler on your head and you throw it away each time you know with the i've i've suffered well i've went through more mountain bike helmets than i ever did off-road helmets or motorcycle helmets yeah Um, maybe i maybe i just crash more on my mountain bike because i'm unskilled exactly exactly there you go insight know thy know thyself socrates you know know your own weakness you never know You, you got it yeah the first year I rode mountain bikes, I couldn't leave the front brake alone. <laughs> oh, <laughs> I'm laughing, right? Why am I laughing? Uh, for something to be funny, it's got to have a little bit of truth in it, right? I know that truth. I'm thinking of my own mistakes, you know. A brand new bike in my brakes. I brought those disc brakes, those new disc brakes on mountain bike. Came out about 15 years ago. They are way different than the calipers. Boy, they're different. Yeah. Boom. Yeah. You're over, I am. The over the top, over the, yeah, I, that was, a, I, I laughed then, but, uh, and I laugh now, but yeah, I know the difference. Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, I have, I've lost more skin and have more scars from that than all the years I've, I've done off-roading on motorcycle or two wheelers or two wheelers and four wheelers. It's, it's an incredible, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I'm a number of doctors come in two Pete surgeons. I know. Uh, basically took out a, you know, a lot of primary children's surgeons, both of them, both of them mountain biking and came in with well, shoulders in a sling. The next one, the other one, you know, out for a while, knocked out his teeth, you know, you know, I guess we all think we're better and younger than we are. <laughs> we're trying to stay young. We're trying yeah, to we stay are. young. Yeah, we are. Uh, I'm, you, I, I figured you guys would have a cure for age. Uh, that's coming. That's coming. You right think now, that- you can, yeah, there's genetic testing out there right now that can probably tell you um, as compared to uh, just uh, national averages and such for big control for certain demographics, um, what your life expectancy might be. And they're going to be close to right. Sometimes I'll joke and I'll go off. I go off on tangents all the time, but I'll talk about next generation, this coming generation, children born right now, 
and those behind it will potentially have the ability to buy age, potentially able to buy a medicine, a therapy, a genetic intervention that will buy you years. That is coming. That's, and then you're, that will come right now. You know, you can do it by changing your diet and your exercise habits, right? Yep. It's not really for purchase, but it will come where you can purchase it, you know, and you purchase penicillin, right? Technically, right. Or antibiotics, you're prolonging your life. Potentially you follow me there. So it's just an extra, but there will come a time where maybe for 10 grand, you can add on average, on average, two years to your life. That will come. That's you can, you don't even blink an eye. You go, I can easily see that happening, you know? So, yeah. What, what do you do with, what do you do with the brain? Um, How do you well, keep the brain clear? Yeah. Well, that's, that's, uh, yeah. Going off on uh, the number one killer, of course, is, uh, outside of COVID this past year is, you know, coronary vascular disease. And a lot of that's preventable, you know, the statins have made somewhat of a difference. They're probably oversold, but uh, all the statin drugs are out there for cholesterol and triglycerides. Um, uh, but through dietary and exercise, you can, you can modify your own risk factors. The biggest risk factor is probably the genes you got from your mom and your dad, you know, but uh, uh, what's going to key is that as far as keeping your senility and keeping your, your, your brain intact. I'm like I said, nobody's going to buy that pill or do that. If they know that there's going to be living in Cena on a wheelchair, you know, my, you know, but uh, yeah, we lose roughly 50,000 neurons a day. We've got billions and billions of neurons in our brain. Um, but uh, the space between your skull and our brain gets a little wider every year. And that's why you can have all these people with that have strokes and don't tolerate trauma as well. Your brain literally shrinks. It at, it's called atrophy is the fancy word, but it drops in volume. And I'll tell you, you go see an 85-year-old person CT and you see an 18-year-old, you be able to tell in two seconds. I wouldn't have to tell you. I wouldn't have to go and do a radiology lecture on you. You go, that's the old person. That's the young person. Because the space between the, the brain and the skull on the inside is a lot wider, you know? So And we can't prevent that. Not right now, we can't. No, you probably can mitigate it, you know, through living a healthy lifestyle. Absolutely. You know, mitigate it, you know. But no, it's going to happen. It's going to happen. You and I are going to lose a neuron during this conversation. Hundreds. So, so less sports, better, better health? Uh, I think sports overall are healthy. And, you know, football is, again, it's... Uh, an outlier, you know, I talk about non-contact sports. Um, I'm, a, I'm a big tennis fan. I like to hit, don't play. I wrestled in high school. You want to talk about character building, those individual sports where you're out there in front of people and uh, there's nobody to blame, you know. Right. Uh, and uh, nothing injures you more than, than um, wrestling. Wrestling's the number one based on uh, the denominator per capita, per participant. Wrestling is the most dangerous sport by statistical analysis. Really? For head injuries, though, that's all injuries. That's that's for all kinds of ankles, elbows, shoulders, wrist, necks. You know, shoulder, wrestling is number one for injuries. But for head injuries, football is number one. Right. You know, it's just different sports, you know. Um, uh, uh, girls, uh, boys, a little bit different. You know, girls uh, tear a ton of ACLs, ligamentous injury, you know, the amount of torque and pressure they put on their ligaments. Um, testosterone has other effects than just behavior you know, an externalized genitalia, you know? Um, so, uh, that's, that's for men for head injuries. I don't know about women. I know soccer, there's some head injuries associated with that too. You can imagine. I heard they were going to try to take the, uh, header out of soccer because of the concussions. 
they've taken them out in the youth, in the youth at the youth age, no header. It's usually under 12 or 14, depends on where you are most places. Um, and it's just out of a due, you know, uh, uh, due diligence and uh, uh, being prescient and aware of the potential risk, I think. You know, I think contact football is slowly going to disappear until they're 14 where they get a little stronger. And then you have to go the double-edged sword. You're going to have more kids injuring themselves because they don't know how to tackle. They don't know how to run. You know what I mean? And only statistical analysis will tell you, you got 14-year-olds that never hit each other. And But, I, but certainly the biggest change you've seen is coaching techniques. They used to have suicide drills. You know, I played football uh, a year or two in high school. And, you know, you line a circle and, you you know, coach points at two people. They're right in the middle, full speed, and hit each other full speed. They don't do that stuff anymore. No coach is doing that anymore. Um, that's where they found out, I think, a college study showed that the majority of head injuries actually occurred in practices and not in games. So I'm a fan of it. I'm a big fan of sports. You've already heard it from me, you know. Right. Um, but what could prevent you from having brain injury and stuff? Yeah. Um, contact sports are not good. You know, concussions are, are true damage to the brain. Um, and uh, it's just a continuum. You know, one minor concussion versus multiple concussions. I'm going to have to live in a glass jar the rest of my life then. Yeah, you got to live and you got to balance it. But, but when it's a kid, it's a whole different ball game. You know, your responsibility. Yeah, and, and you don't, as a young parent, and you're still very active in your in your world and you're, you know, when my son was young, I was still racing and still very active in the, in the off-road community. And I didn't, I didn't see the negative in the injuries because I didn't sustain the injuries. I sustained the injuries after the kids were a little older. And as I get older, I see the effects. So I would play back and, and change the way I did it. Um, but when, when he, when he was young, you know, I didn't, I didn't have a problem. I didn't have any uh, broken bones. I didn't have, I was fortunate. You know, I was just one of the fortunate few that, that it came through unscathed basically. Yeah. Yeah. There's, you know, it's just, you can't account for all, all risk and, and you can't live your life that way. You can't just not live in your life, you know? So, uh, you know, I think we do the best we can and, and we have to absorb some risk with walking out our front door. We have to resort with putting our feet on the ground in the morning, you know, um, but it's just a personal decision, a balance of what you, you know, the how much value you gain of said activity driving to the grocery store, right? That, you know, there's risk in that. One in about 50,000 is the rough number you assume for car, car times you drive your car that you could be in a life-threatening accident. It's a rough number, right? 50,000. So every time you get in your car, remember you got <laughs> that. I Pretty got good that. odds. I got Mount Miles, man. I got lots of miles. But I don't care what state you're in. Somebody probably died down the roads in your yeah. state. If you're in California, probably three to three to four people died today in California. Didn't come home. You know what I mean? Going to go, going quote unquote to the grocery store or to work. Yeah, yeah. So you can't account for all of them. I think you know, going back and and in my 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 part of the woods being pediatrics. Yeah, I think it's a, a continuum of how you introduce your sport to them. Um, the problem is, it's just, uh, um, uh, uh, it's hard to account for all these variables, so many variables in your, in your sport, so many variables from terrain to weather to, uh, other riders, you know, I don't see how you can have a computer model to tell you exactly what the risks are. You just can't, there's just too many, you know, no outcomes at each point. There's just too many outcomes, but, uh, uh, 
yeah frontal lobes and kids you know it's coming it's taking years for me to understand that but they are not the same and you joke about the kids these days kids these days that's just a an aphorism for for kids don't know how to process risk you know and the word rehab there's not a 14 year old that knows what that word means (laughs) there's not a there's not a 54 year old man that doesn't know what that means you know (laughs) (laughs) well i uh I fell off in, in Idaho years back in 2004 and dislocated and broke my shoulder. Well, that went back in the socket and I finished the race, raced two races the next day. Oh man. Later. And two weeks later flew to Europe and raced in the 12 hours of rendezvous. Yeah. And with the way my life worked, I was always too busy to go to the doctor. Yeah. I finally was at work one day in 2014 and my shoulder dislocated while I was working on a machine. Oh, and I said, I can't handle this anymore because it hurt. You know, I mean, I had atrophy in my bicep and my arm didn't work right. And I went to the doctor and they uh, said, yeah, well, where were you 10 years ago? Yeah. The shoulder is the most complex joint in the body. Um, They could have fixed me now I, well they, they they could have had a better chance of fixing it boy the shoulder um is something else i was uh, I rock climbing and, and i was canyoneering in southern utah and i fell and kind of in a, did a steeple kind of put my arms out to the left and right of me like a t like a crossbar and caught myself just kind of just being a guy powering through it you know just put it out and caught it and i probably fell i don't think but five six feet and all of a sudden my shoulder could pop and my guy it was belaying me um up above me he heard it he goes, what was that that's my shoulder i was like i don't feel anything next day i got up i could lift my shoulder above my you know elbow and, and kind of like you i didn't have time for doctors and, and even though i was a i was a resident then i never saw it and i went and saw the doctor and he said the same thing to me they did arthros- arthroscopy where they injected dye into it and looked at it and i played all kinds of sports growing up i saw it and it looked i looked it looked awful and i sent it to my friend my roommate who's a he did a body fellowship. So he did radiology and did an extra year and just body MRI and stuff. And he goes, Oh yeah. He goes, he goes, you wouldn't believe all these people that are athlete athletes, what they do to their joints. He goes, show your shoulder. looks um, honestly, it looks pretty bad, but it looks like everybody else's that played sports. I can tell you played sports. If you give me that shoulder and tell me your age, I'd say you played sports. <laughs> There's a lot of one advice I'll give people out there when you're working out, it bums me at the gym since I've got a platform. You gave me a platform. Here's a good rule of thumb for ortho, orthopedists told me this, and I've heard it, and I believe it to be true. Whenever you're working out, you should stand in, in, a, in, a, in whatever position you're in. You look in your left and your right, your hand should always be in your field of view. Remember those pull-ups you used to grab the bar and pull it behind your shoulder and pull it down and, and hit the, the crossbar on your back? That is not good for that joint. That kind of hurts. You should always be able to, if you're facing straight ahead, your hands should always be in the field of view. They should never do anything that puts them outside of the field of view for your joint. That's a good rule of thumb for people working out. So if you're doing that where you bend over, it's almost like a military pull mm-hmm. or whatever pull down bar, you know, it's almost like a military press, but a military pull when people do it behind their shoulders, you know, uh, if you've ever done it before, you know, you always had a little bit of pain, but you just thought this is normal. It wasn't normal. You shouldn't have done it. Uh, I did that for years. But that's what he said to me. He goes, don't ever do it. He, he gave me a list of exercises to do to strengthen it. And that was it. And I've heard that um, repeated by a couple. So people out there listening, you want to know what you can and shouldn't do with your shoulder joint. Always have your hands where you can see them. Whatever you're doing. Military press is fine. You can see it the whole way. 
where you're pulling back, you shouldn't do those kind of things. Ah, yeah, because I can't even do that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it I'm, doesn't I'm go you. back there. Yeah. You know, yeah, I just it doesn't go behind my back. Uh, you know, I can't reach, I can't reach back and take my billfold out of my pocket if I put it in. Yeah, in, in for you, man. I have to put it in the other one. Feel for you. Yeah. I, I did it to myself. You know, I can't blame anybody else. I can't be mad at ATVs. I can't. Yeah. Uh, I'm the one that chose not to go get it fixed. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I, yeah. I stretch. I train. I Usually I train on Tuesdays, Thursdays. Um, that This will segue into my next question. Uh, that was awesome talking about the body and the things that we shouldn't do. Um, but I didn't get to go to train today because my wife works in hospice and yeah. one of her patients, uh, passed away yesterday, unfortunately, um, and was diagnosed. Well, they tested her after she had passed and she had COVID. Okay. She didn't die from COVID. She died of a heart attack. Um, and she was already elderly and, and yeah. probably, going to pass at some point or had comorbidities. Um, but that's why I didn't go train because we tested negative, which was probably too soon to test. But that brings me to the topic of um, COVID. Let's, uh, let's talk about what, uh, what we should and shouldn't be doing. Oh, well, um, direct me a little bit more on that. That's, that's a, there's a lot of, <laughs> What should and shouldn't be doing is kind of, I don't know, uh, it's uh, a big uh, open-ended question, but if you like me to try to answer it, I guess I can. Um, well, uh, we can just, the the basics of health protection for the individuals that are older, okay, I'm 55, I don't think I'm in a, uh, I think I'm relatively physically fit. Yeah, yeah. I don't think I'm in a high risk category, but you may yeah. totally disagree with me because you're the professional and I'm just the guy yeah. thinking he's still 25 and Superman. No, no. Um, you know, so here's how you worry about it. And I will do a lot of kind of mathematics and try to apply it and make it kind of where it's realistically uh, obtainable and uh, people can, can get it. What's the, how much you should worry about something happening is the likelihood of said event happening multiplied by the outcome of that. Let's talk about a, a car. If you were getting a car wreck and a serious car wreck, um, or uh, and it was one in fifty thousand that you're going to die or be severely injured, you already told me you're willing to take that chance because I know you drive your car. If you're going to go paragliding or something, and the chance is one in five thousand, it's nine. Or you work in a paper factory and you got a risk of a paper cut. Well, the risk of paper cuts higher than all those put together. You go to work every day and you don't worry because the outcome is what a paper cut, you know. So the likelihood, so the event of that happening is super high, you know, and you might say, I'm gonna quit my job, I'm not gonna work and collate sheets of paper anymore in my paper factory because I'm getting a paper cut every week. But it's the significance of this event. So that's really mathematically how you break down how much you should worry about something. Chances of me falling into hot springs of Yellowstone is zero if I don't go there. Chances of me uh, uh you know getting tetanus, walking barefoot in my you know, it's that's really. If you want to break it down statistically, ATV, you know, you've got a high instance. If you don't wear protection, if you don't have a course that you've run through before and know what the obstacles are, and you know what I mean, you, you mitigate that. So COVID to me, that's the risk of, of dying is one thing. So I got it last year. My smell is still not the same and I feel like I'm foggy, but 
that's, that's, again, that's anecdotal. That's really not valid. You know, um, some of that's just due to natural ageism and I just have natural doubts about my own, you know, uh, abilities and, and, uh, my own co uh, cognitive abilities. But, uh, what I would say to, to people that, uh, um, living, we kind of touched on this, there's, there's dying and then there's living with a lot of, you know, uh, uh, restrictions and, and, um, daily hurdles that, uh, people get through. So, uh, COVID, you have to look at it. If we're talking about death, I can tell you statistically pretty straight up what your chances are based on a lot of comorbidities, but I can't tell you for sure. Genetics is huge. Danny will tell you, we've had whole families come in where the, the sister, the brother, the uncle and the granddad got it and they all died. You know, there's something about their genetic makeup that predisposed them to get this inflammatory cascade and they get clots everywhere. They're doing better than two weeks later. You never know. They're just, they're back, you know, in the hospital or never left to go back into the ICU. Other people get COVID. It doesn't bother them at all. And I think we all understand that nowadays. It's really not the virus. It's the body's response to the virus. You know, it's what you trigger. And that's true for almost uh, so many other diseases, you know, autoimmune disorders, you know, that's the body attacking itself from, you know, women's and thyroid conditions to, um, uh, from arthritis and, and so many other, you know, disorder, autoimmune disorders. So I, uh, if we break it down to what your risk are, I like to take, this is a good analogy. I live off analogies. If you are 80 years old and you get COVID, let's just take out all other comorbidities. You don't have diabetes, you're not obese, not a pre, pre, you know, pre, you didn't smoke before, have existing medical, you know, all these things. You get a dice when you're 80, 80 years old. It's about one in 20 of that, of the, there's 20 faces on that dice. And one of them is skull and crossbones. Three of them are going to be ventilators, you know, and you're going to live, you know, six of them are going to be CPAP. Five are going to be in the hospital. Four are going to be minor illness at home. And one is not really sick. And you're going to roll that dice. If you are 18, you get a dice that's literally based on numbers, statistics, probably got over 10,000 faces on it. And only one of them's got a skull and crossbones. Only seven of it's got an ICU and a ventilator, you know, and 6,000 are just mild flu-like symptoms. So we each get a, a dice to roll. You being 55 and hopefully not, you know, if you're obese and you're old and you smoked before, you better be scared. You know, if you're 18 and healthy, um, and you know, you just better worry that you're giving it to somebody that's not healthy more than yourself. So that's the best way I break it down. We just get a dice and it depends on our age, our health, our genetics, uh, other comorbidities and, and access to healthcare, you know, but we each get a, a dice to roll. And the sad thing is it looks like even if you're infected or you get the vaccine, you become pretty naive. Those antibodies that it generates aren't lasting very long. It's like we get a seasonal flu. Um, and so that's the sad thing that uh, uh, I wish it doesn't seem like you can develop uh, innate immunity, you know, lasting immunity to this infection. Um, so uh, what do we, you know, what do we need to do and not need to do? Well, that's a hard question to, to answer, but, you know, 700,000 are dead, you know, attributable to this, to, you know, you know, you said that woman died, you know, she died of a heart attack, but would she have lived another year? Had she not gotten COVID, you know, because I got COVID when I'm six, you know what I mean? When I'm 65, am I going to be more predisposed to develop a clot in my coronary or develop a pulmonary embolus because I got COVID and my endothelium and my blood vessels are a little bit scarred or likely to, I don't know. We don't know that yet. You know, the long COVID thing. So I don't know if by having COVID, I dropped a year off my life expectancy. 
on average. You know, these are all statistical measures. So I don't know. I think we'll find that out. But we certainly know for sure that life expectancy is going to drop in the, over the next few years. And it actually already started dropping before COVID uh, here so in America. No, there's no immunity from having COVID? Uh, like if you had no symptoms from it and you just moved on? No, 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 no. The um, ability to maintain a high antibody titer to COVID is not sustaining one infection. So you can get one infection for uh, some infections and, and have immunity for the majority of your life. Hepatitis B vaccine, you get that series when you're a kid, you're, you're going to have antibodies that for, for one reason or another are able to be um, uh, regenerated and maintained in your plasma pretty high. Uh, you know, a kid gets chickenpox vaccine, you know, well, you got to get one when you're 50. It's not a chickenpox vaccine. It's a shingles. Same thing. That's a herpes virus, you know, same as HSV1, HSV2. Um, uh, people talk about mono kissing disease, right? I guarantee I had mono when I was a kid. I'm pretty sure I did. We all got it, right? Right. Um, that's hanging out in me. It's been totally implicated in a lot of lymphomas. So, you know, I had chicken pox when I was a kid. So there's a chicken pox virus hanging out in my body right now. And my antibodies, and my immune system drops. When I'm 60, next thing you know, I've got a flaming, you know, my whole dermatome on my right side of my rib cage. It's just flared up. You've seen it and heard about it. People tell you it's just like knives. Um, and so that could come out in me. So again, it's just a continuum. And these kind of messy answers, I think, will give people a lot of problems. You know, there's just not these absolutes. Things are framed in our life in a lot of absolutes, you know. Um, but genetics is huge. Daniel will tell you, he will tell you 100% that he'll see families come in there. And uh, they get it, you know, I don't want to, I can't, I could tell you stories, but I worry about HIPAA. Um, don't want to go there, but I've seen it myself. Um, you know, uh, families get it in their whole, you know, the nephew, niece, the nephew and, and uncle and the granddad, they all get it. And some walk away and some die, you know, wow. but that's, that's my analogy. You think of the dice, you roll, you, you kind of don't know what dice you're going to get, but you can get an idea. You know, you're 85 and you've previously smoked and you're heavy. You, I bet you money, you've got about one in five chance of dying from COVID, you know. Baby, not much chance at all. Not, not much chance. I'm honest with you. Just doesn't. Of course, you don't see any 85-year-olds dying of RSV, you know. Um, and you'll see these babies that are born and mom walks in the room and the baby's room temperature, you know. got and turns out they had RSV, you know. That makes it's RSV. Uh, the respiratory syncytial virus, you've heard RSV? Yeah, it's I've a, heard of it. Yeah, yeah. So it just affects kids way harder than adults. You and I get it. It may be a runny nose. Baby gets it. They are congested. They are they're, uh, they get bronchiolitis real bad. And really what happens is they, they sometimes don't care that their oxygen and carbon dioxide are, are going down and up respectively. They don't care. They'll just have a SIDS fan on you, you know, just quit breathing. Uh, but it doesn't happen to adults ever, you know, so... Uh -huh. You know, isn't the flu more dangerous for uh, children? It depends on what age. So once you get down to probably around, uh, again, we're just finding this out. It's new data and, and uh, it's changing. But last year, roughly the cutoff was about 12 to 16, where it's about equal. If you're under 12, you have a greater risk of dying from flu than from COVID. Again, my, my statistics aren't up to date, but I'm not probably very far off. And it just starts to cross over when you get into your early 20s, you know. Uh, but every year there's, you know, I bet there is the primary children's one or two kids that die of flu every year. And half of those usually have underlying medical problems. But there's some kids that just get flu and like, probably due to genetics, probably due to genetics, something triggers something in them and they just fall apart on you. 
Um, and some of them get pretty sick and in the hospital. Again, you get the vaccine for the flu, uh, you know, to, to prevent not just death, but prevent hospitalizations and, and also to hopefully decrease the amount of time you shed the virus and, and you know, uh, can spread it. That's, that's, you know, that's really people forget that about vaccines. Um, you know, uh, but there's two reasons to get it for your neighbor who's got, um, you know, their dad living and who got a lung transplant last year, you know. Uh, but I got it and just got mild flu-like symptoms. I don't know if you've experienced it or not. If you got lucky enough not to get it. I believe my wife and I believe we had it before, like in February of 20 mm. before it was a thing. I got super sick. Uh, I don't technically know some of the symptoms, but I had the, I had the super high fever for a day, felt horrible for three or four days, but you know, I, I felt really bad on a Saturday on Monday. I was up going to work, uh, even yeah. though I didn't feel good. Yeah, you could have. I, uh, I realized something wasn't right. I got up <laughs> that morning, got up and said, I bet I have COVID. I went to my, my bathroom, pulled out my deodorant bar, put it to my nose. Couldn't smell a thing. One thing. The rest of the day today, I couldn't taste. It's a weird sensation to eat food and you can't smell it or taste it. It's just temperature and, and, um, and uh consistency i mean you're just feeling the food in your mouth you know it's a weird sensation for two days i had that and still to this day i don't smell the same but um i kind of sometimes i wear a mask in a crowded place i wear it of course in the airplane you have to but i can wear it kind of because i don't want it again i don't want it again i don't know what like i said if it dropped a year off my life because when i'm 65 75 and i get sick Mm -hmm. you know uh because a lot of these people are dying from uh from secondary complications of the you know after they get the pneumonia you know they uh um get clots and um you know stroke out or get massive uh, coronary events you know um uh but uh now i don't want my just to be clear um if you get the virus and you're naturally you develop antibodies to it they don't seem to last really much longer if any longer than if you get the vaccine they seem to go away the best analogy I kind of told you, I guess, would be chicken pox would be a good one, you know, or you're, you're kind of, uh, everybody can, I've seen 24 year olds get shingles, you know, uh, it's usually older you are when your immune system drops, you know, we fight every day right now. You, you had a, you strained at a bowel movement or you brushed your teeth too aggressively and your mouth just full of bacteria. One of them gets into your bloodstream every day. You fight infection every day. And if you don't have a good immune system, you're likely to, to succumb one bacteria turns to two to four to eight you get it the whole exponential growth that's why you think your women die urosepsis do you think that activity in life and the fact that you keep moving help that uh yeah uh, well uh huge independent um uh, uh comorbidity or, or uh or risk factor is being obese most people that are obese are not active now you know, some people are, some people I've seen, I have seen 250 pound people run a triathlon, you know, but for the most part, I'm, I'm, I'm not kidding. I've seen a 250 pound, five foot six woman, you know, do a full triathlon before, you know, but most, yeah. So most people are, uh, uh, sedentary, they're obese. So yeah, being, being healthy certainly helps you. Well, I, I, I don't consider myself obese, but I guess if you took my measurements, I'm obese because I'm probably overweight but i'm also thicker 
than most of most so five-year-olds. You could go and have a a, 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 a test done, a calor, calorimetry test done, and they could get you into a machine. You could breathe and exhale your CO2, and they could dunk you in a pool. They could find out what your body mass index, because every weightlifter is fat. You take their height and divide it by their weight, their BMI, just do your BMI. Yep. I think most people are familiar with that. Um, and, uh, and they're, they're by definition, obese, these, you know, competitive bodybuilders, they've got what 3% body fat on them, you know? So, yeah. Um, but to be honest with you, if you're not very active and, and you feel like you're thicker than others, it's probably you. <laughs> oh, I'm, very you know, I'm very active. I, uh, yeah, you are, and you might have a higher muscle mass, you know? Um, so that's really what they would take, but a poor man's way of doing it is just take your height and your weight and, and doing the calculations of the BMI, you know? Yeah. I'm, I'm fat then. <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> i'm a little smaller I'm, I'm i'm a little shorter than danny but i'm smaller than he is yeah yeah you it know. just depends on how much muscle you got you know what i mean you know got how much muscle you got yeah uh, I, can, I can lift him so i'm good yeah 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 certainly being healthy helps you with covid just like about anything else but right now looking at you and me who's got a higher cholesterol i don't have, you have you, exactly you have no idea and i don't either my cholesterol has never been high yeah, mine's high. Yeah, mine's high. And I, I'm pretty active. I don't think my BMI, you know, I'm 5'9, 155. But my cholesterol is Oh, you go to the gym, you see a 300 pound guy, you don't know what their cholesterol is. You know, these doctors used to say, don't eat a lot of eggs. We've since learned it really has so little to do with your diet. It's more to do with your genetics. I think yeah. everything has to do with your genetics, your teeth, your eyes. You oh, know. absolutely. Yeah, teeth. You got bad teeth, you probably look at your mom or your dad. Probably yeah, your yeah. mom or your dad. Yep. I, yep. I don't have a cavity. I'm 55 years old. Yeah. My yeah. Could be great, doctor. great hygiene. Could be great hygiene. But again, we also can't draw any conclusions off an N01. Just being consistent with you here. Right. Right. <laughs> you can't. You just can't. Yeah. I get it. I mean, well, you build you build 10 engines. Okay. Yeah. Nine yeah. of them are perfect and yeah. run their length of their life. And the tenth one, you know, you Fails. back in a basket. And that farmer says it's the worst company and worst engine he's ever seen in his life. And he's hundred percent right. <laughs> but you know what I mean? Yep. It's applied statistics and it's kind of hard. It gets into almost abstract thought, you know, it's truly concrete rationalization, but it, it approaches uh, abstract rationalization when you get this many numbers, this many variables to deal with. And a lot of people have problems with that. Um, but I think people at first are like, you got the vaccine, you got COVID, see vaccine doesn't work. And then quickly you point to, you remember the flu vaccine, and most people know this, that just because you get the flu vaccine doesn't mean you're a, not going to die from the flu or get the flu. Just like wearing a seatbelt doesn't mean you're not going to die, you know, and so forth. But so, it just changes changes your odds. So let me ask you this question. Yeah. This is a loaded question, and you mm -hmm. can defer if you prefer. This is my opinion here. So. Um, should they mandate it? So um, it's a lot of questions, yes and no. So um, you go back, historically, this country was founded um, on uh, the idea that a vaccine was something that was done to protect the country. As you know, probably know, George Washington required all the soldiers at Fort Valley or at uh, whatever Valley. Um, was it? I've been listening to some podcasts and they've been talking about it. Yeah, so it's true. It started at that age. Um, and uh, vaccines have been required. You go in the military and you show them, and you might know this if you serve and you're giving your card, they throw it in the trash. They just, you walk down a line and they stick your left arm, right arm, left arm, right arm. They don't care. You're, you're getting vaccine against anthrax and everything. So those that give them the, serve in the military have already given up this idea. 
that it's a voluntary and not mandated. If you want to work in a hospital, you better be checked for TB. And you also better be checked for pertussis. And you have to be vaccinated against those. You work in uh, so healthcare industry, serving your military or any other public service, you know, typhoid Mary, you know, so you cross over some lines here and, um, and uh, it really should be mandated based on what if the disease was super infectious and caused 50% mortality. Nobody have this debate. What if the disease was fairly infectious and had a very, very low mortality, something like, uh, um, let's take just, just uh, the virus as we talked about, the, the, you know, uh, nobody mandates that you get flu outside of those uh, specter and coronavirus, COVID-19, novel coronavirus starts to cross over in that gray zone to the point where it's almost like you are not again doing it for yourself. It's, it's, we are doing it as the first society. And uh, what I, I go back to a lot of times, and this gets philosophical, but going back to Voltaire, you know, the famous French and, uh, you know, um, uh, philosopher of the, of the Enlightenment, it talked about how we're all, believe it or not, uh, indebted to each other in the social contract. You know, I, I don't stab you and steal your money. You don't uh, um, commit an offense against me. We're all tied together and we're all responsible for each other to a degree. I don't go down the highway, 100, down my you know, neighborhood roads, 50 miles an hour, even though the stop sign's down. And I don't even drive 35 on a cold, rainy night with ice on the road. And there's a school letting out a performance, you know, in December for Christmas, you know. So, uh, you know, it should be mandated. Um, certain professions, I think it should be mandated. I think it should be. If you work in the public health industry, it's nothing new. They've been asked of us, you know, we're serving the military. Uh, things like that, then you ought to. The, the, the science is pretty sound. There's just too much disinformation out there. Um, and uh, uh, again, I think people feel like they, they confabulate freedom, individual freedoms and liberties. And as you and I both know, um, the uh, um, freedom to express yourself. My son's give me a hug here. Hey, buddy. Oh, this is my little football player. Hey. Good luck out there, man. Thank you. Um, you know, you can't uh, say, uh, this is uh, my daughter brought up to you. You know, you can't yell fire in, in a movie theater. Yep. Yes, you, can. you can't. And my daughter brought up, she's an American problem. She's a senior this year. And she said there was, and this is a true story, a case went before the Supreme Court. Somebody published a book on how to get away with murder. Literally published. It was literally what you can do to get away with murder. This is a true case. And she briefly showed it to me. And, and she goes, and they went to Supreme Court. And what do you think happened? And I paused because I wasn't sure. And she said, well, it doesn't protect your right to your freedom of speech stops when it is it basically infringes upon somebody else's freedom to live. And that book, it teaches you how to hurt someone in the Supreme Court. I don't know which which Supreme Court it was ruled against the publisher and they held them liable for that publishing that book, you know. And so you're starting to get on the gray slope, you know. So my answer is, should it be mandated? Absolutely. For some people, and you've already been taking it for years um, and uh, for others, mm, yeah, it's it's great. That's my my answer. You know, you're not going to get me. I, I I asked you for your opinion. One yeah, other, I that's wasn't. it. That's it. Uh, but and it's mathematics. People go six feet. Why can I walk in with a restaurant and take it off and sit it down? This is where some people just don't have the ability to to comprehend that it's all just applied mathematics. Seven feet's better than six. Not going in your restaurant's better than anything at all. Two masks is that much better. Even the best masks aren't that great. Um, you know, but, uh, 
you got to find a balance where society this is where i think biden and trump if you want to talk politics sort of a a negated i really really don't want to talk politics but this this won't this won't this won't this is where both of them screwed up so therefore it's kind of apolitical um it's they should have had not just one guy i think fauci took the to responsibility too much i mean because he's a virologist a a doctor what do you ask when you ask a doctor he's going to say stay in don't get sick you ask an economist They'd have a different answer. You ask the population psychologist. So I think they should have had a panel. Both of these presidents, so this is why it's not political. Both of these presidents should have had a panel of people up there to talk about if you do this, this is what's going to happen to children who are deprived of school. This is the economist talks about the effects on the economy. Person talks about, uh, you know, human behaviors and spousal abuse. People, you know, all these implications. But you ask a doctor and he's going to say, stay at home, get the vaccine. Is all he thinks about is saving lives, you know. And I, so that's where I would tell you, I think both of them screwed up. They should have had a panel of people who all come together and talk about how this implicates this and that. So therefore I stayed apolitical. I hope you saw that. I agree. I agree. I agree with that. Totally. Yeah. 100%. Yeah. yeah. I'm yeah, not yeah. a Fauci fan at all. So yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm, and I'm saying he did good or bad. I'm saying you ask a doctor what to do and they're going to say, save a life. You ask an economist and let's just get a, a couple of drinks of wine in them. And then you tell them it kills people 65 and over that are pretty much sucking off social services and not contributing to the economy in any meaningful way. You know, that economist is going to say, let it burn. Yeah. Let it burn. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Open. yeah, open let the door. The top of that pyramid, burn it off. You know, the base that contributes to the, the economic engine, be even stronger. You know, that's the truth. Yeah. I'm sorry. I, that's ugly, but it's true. Yeah, that's the truth. Yeah. So, um, yeah, that's what you ask when you ask, uh, uh, you know, you want people to talk and they really do. And, and some things we don't know, but that's where um, I think it could have been handled better because. Uh, I love the openness because so many people are afraid to talk. Yeah, that's just my, it's just opinion, like I said, but I, I think there's, I think you can see how that, because uh, it's not just a virus, it's not just a virus. It's not, you ask a, vir- a virologist what to do, he'll tell you, you know, like I said, you ask uh population psychologist you ask a uh, global economist you ask an actuarian you know we talk about like vegas you want to know the truth go to vegas right about the sports right yeah. who's the best team this that and the other whatever just ask vegas and they will tell you straight up on a neutral field who would be the better team none of this opinion because vegas they don't care they don't care about alma maters and fight songs and historical they look at it from a cold hard you know statistical analysis perspective right this no. team on this day might get beat, but odds are they will not get beat because of these factors. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It's way more beyond records. Records really don't matter as much, you know. So. Doctor, I want to thank you so much for sitting down with ATV Talk Inspired. Uh, this has been an amazing conversation, far more exciting than I expected uh, in some ways and exhilarating. And um, I, really hope that you'll sit down with me again sometime and we can talk for yeah yeah we could see yeah uh, things are going to evolve we're changing the world by all measures you know we're evolving at a rate you know unforeseen uh, just 100 years ago you know from a technological perspective right we'll see if my next partner in five years is a robot you know (laughs) i want to see that but not Yeah, you kind of do, you kind of don't. Who do you want, you know, who do you want welding your uh, rivets on your airplane, a human or a robot? I want a a human. (laughs) I want a robot 100 days of the week. Who do I want flying it right now? But a rivet, it's going to be the same temperature, going to the same angle, 
the right duration, you know. Yeah, but uh, the flawed human taught it how to do it. As long as you program it right, I'll take that robot. See, it's another talk we can get into. They're mm -hmm. absolutely, you know, so it's, it's uh, yeah, AI. We didn't even touch on that. That's another. Yeah, that's a whole nother world conversation. Yeah, 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 we touched on that. So, but we, we'll see. It's already started to creep in. I've got some calculators out there I use to determine my risk ratio. And they didn't exist before. It's just basically a dot going, hmm, well, in my experience, <laughs> And so it's already creeping in and you've got better outcomes to show for it. Uh, Don't put anything past you. Yeah. But when they take over, dude, they're going to take out the virus and that's us. Right now. Oh, we'll see. Next step in evolution might just be naturally might not be uh, organic. It might, might be yeah, binary in, in nature. Who knows? But we're not going to go there. That's, that's another question. <laughs> <laughs> that's going to be a great conversation man yeah yeah all right hey well your son's a pleasure to work with he's a true professional he's always trying to get better every day uh and he brings a great attitude and um uh, he's super valued well i appreciate yeah. that yeah. Um, i didn't ask you um what do you think about his college deal oh uh i don't know too much about it i, I just know that most people i told him this a lot of them go into that Eventually, they miss the bedside too much and they want to get back to the bedside. So I know he's teaching a lot and doing things like that, but I've seen it in so many nurses. They go there and it seems to be better hours and the pay is maybe not quite as good, but they think, you know, it's this, but they eventually miss the bedside. They want to just get back. They want to get their elbows dirty, you know. They take care of the people. Yeah. Thank you again. The team here at ATV Talk would love your feedback. Please email us at hello at ATVTalkPodcast.com. Brought to you by Take-Two Custom Teams. Screen printing experience that is dedicated to quality and customer service every time. San Diego's Body Evolution and Wellness Center. With over 17 years experience, Dr. Heidi looking out after all your chiropractic needs and Coach PJ looking out after all your fitness needs. Visit our website, www.bodyevolution.org or call for an appointment, 619-987-8875. Duncan Technologies International. More than 33 years in the industries building racing programs and ATVs around the world. We build winners. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed the episode. If you did, don't forget to rate us on all the available platforms and share us with your loved ones. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook for more ATV Talk News. See you next time.